Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. If you listen to our sister show, White Coat Black Art, you may already know that I have dealt with insomnia most of my adult life. But these days, I seem to have plenty of company. Everything from lifting pandemic restrictions to the war in Ukraine. Is it my imagination or am I seeing and hearing more commercials for sleep aids? So this week we're asking, what do we know about how effective those sleep aids are? Hi, Elliot. Welcome to The Dose. Hi, thank you for having me, Brian. How are you yourself sleeping amidst all of this worrisome news that we've been hearing? Truthfully, I got to admit, I'm not sleeping as well as I used to in the past. Uh, My wife would tell me that uh, she says, I sleep like a sleep doctor. (laughs) That was certainly true for a long time. Uh, Lately, I've been having a little bit of trouble. You know, the pandemic has introduced a lot of uncertainty and a lot of upheaval in our our lives, just with uh, all the changes that have occurred and the the threat looming of the COVID on top of us. Additionally, with all the other circumstances in the world uh, and the implications of those things, it does make sleeping uh, a little bit harder these days, for sure. So you have a stake in it as well. Uh, So I can't wait to hear what you have to say about all this. But before we begin, can you give us a hi, my name is, tell us what you do and where you do it. Just ad lib. Sure. My name is Elliot Lee. I am a sleep specialist at the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Centre, and I'm medical director of the Sleep Disorders Clinic. So you're well qualified. Well, uh, another good reason why I'm looking forward to this conversation. At most pharmacies, you can find melatonin, lavender sprays, sleep gummies, you name it. What are the practical differences between herbal remedies, prescription medications, and other over-the-counter products that all promise to help people sleep? Well, over-the-counter products, while they're regulated by Health Canada, they generally are, for the most part, not that effective for most sleep disorders. The herbal products or homeopathic products are not that well monitored by Health Canada for the most part. So there can be a lot more uncertainty as to what the active ingredients are. And then the prescription medications that can be used for sleep have much more rigorous studies behind them for the most part. And so uh, in that sense, we, we can better predict what people's responses to those drugs might be. Uh, but the overall evidence for all of these sleeping medications, whether it's over-the-counter or homeopathic or you know, so-called natural or prescription, the overall evidence is relatively sparse relative to the amount that they're being used by society. Let's uh, take some of these one at a time. Let's start with with herbal remedies. You know the thing, the ones that I've that I've heard of that I've certainly seen are, are ones that contain valerian root, Saint John's wort. So, what are some of the most popular uh, herbal remedies that are out there for sleep? I'd say you probably named most of them. I think the one other one that is popular, probably for society to use, is melatonin and perhaps tryptophan. Uh, so, both of these may have indications for. Uh, assisting sleep in certain circumstances. So melatonin, for example, is a 
hormone that's normally produced in our brain in response to darkness. And the level will go up at night, but then drop during the day. So it is actually important for sleep initiation and maintenance. Uh, so it can be uh, synthesized uh, in a drug product that we can take or consume. Uh, so uh, for people who have what we call a circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorder, it can actually be quite helpful to shift the sleep cycle. So people, for example, who are night owls or people who do shift work or suffer from jet lag, small doses of melatonin timed at the right interval can actually be quite helpful for sleep initiation and maintenance. But otherwise, by itself, as a soporific drug uh, or a sleeping drug, is generally not that helpful. 80% of people really will not describe any benefit from the drug, but, but there's a small group of people, maybe 20%, that will report some benefit. And because the side effects of uh, mel taking melatonin are relatively benign, uh, it may be reasonable to try for short-term use if insomnia is a problem. So that I've got this clear then, if you don't have a melatonin deficit, or if you're failing to, to, to make melatonin at the right time in your sleep-wake cycle, then melatonin is probably not going to work all that well for you. Have I got it right? Pretty much. The exception is if there's an underlying circadian rhythm disorder, then in those cases, taking melatonin at a different time to shift the sleep cycle, so what we call a chronobiotic use, then can actually be helpful for those people suffering from sleep problems. But Otherwise, for the regular person who tries to take it at nighttime, it's unlikely to be helpful. What makes it really confusing is there are people who we know who are relatively short on melatonin. Uh, older people, for example, melatonin production will go down as we age. But even in those cases, when melatonin is introduced as a sort of substitute, it still doesn't always help those people, even though there's an identified melatonin deficit. So we still need further research for these problems. Elliot, what do we know about uh, the the amount of melatonin in these over-the-counter products? I've heard that, that they can vary and they're not always consistent. Well, this is the issue with these over-the-counter products. So because they're not carefully monitored or regulated, there can be issues with the amounts of active ingredient in these products. This was identified recently in a study in Guelph showing that the uh, amounts of melatonin in over-the-counter products can vary considerably. So when people are looking at these products uh, over the counter, they have to exercise a certain amount of caution because uh, those amounts can be quite different depending on the formulation. You mentioned tryptophan. What do we know about that? Well, tryptophan is essential amino acid. And so what that means is that our body can't normally produce uh, tryptophan in, uh, physiologically. So we need to consume it through our diet, but it is actually needed to make our serotonin and melatonin. So Without tryptophan, we can't actually make those things. So people can consume tryptophan as a, an over-the-counter product and consumed in higher amounts. There can be some benefit for sleep in certain cases, but there has to be some caution used for that. There, there are some concerns, for example, with people developing a rare disorder called eosinophilic myalgia syndrome. So before we leave the herbal remedies, what about St. John's wort or valerian root? Are they, are they at all effective? Are they safe? Most of the data on valerian and St. John's wort, to my knowledge, is very minimal, first, uh, firstly, and really minimal, if any, benefits for sleep for the vast majority of those products. What about safety? So for safety, St. John's wort, you have to be careful because it can have some drug-drug interactions if people are taking certain kinds of what we now call uh, serotonin drugs, they used to be called SSRIs or antidepressants, 
Uh, there can be risks of developing such, uh, something called serotonin syndrome, where there's basically an overload of serotonin leading to significant illness. Uh, to my knowledge, valerian doesn't have any particular toxicity. It may have some sedating properties, but in terms of affecting sleep, it's generally not that uh, helpful. But if sedation is needed, there might be some modest benefit for those drugs, but very little study for uh, both of those. Okay. Before we depart the subject of products that we swallow, I did want to ask you briefly about prescription sleep medications. What are the types? I know there's, there's several types. Which ones are most commonly prescribed? So probably the most commonly prescribed ones are drugs called sedative hypnotics. So, uh, and they probably have the most data to support their efficacy. It doesn't mean they're the best drugs, but they just have the most data. So the commonest ones are a group of drugs called benzodiazepines, and then there's another sort of evolved group from those drugs called non-benzodiazepine benzodiazepine receptor agonists. It's just a long name, but basically these drugs act at the same receptor as benzodiazepines, but at a different site. And so because that action is different, the actions are more targeted specifically towards sleep while minimizing potential for other side effects that can be associated with the use of benzodiazepines. Maybe another related group of drugs is called the alpha-2 delta drugs. So those work on the similar receptor, but also at a different site than either of the aforementioned drugs that I mentioned. Then uh, there are several other different uh, drugs that are prescribed. So sometimes people will use drugs called tricyclic antidepressants. Um, so a, a more common one that is just sort of uh, gained more popularity in the market is one called doxepin. But these medications probably work primarily through blocking histamine and serotonin to help facilitate uh, and maintain sleep. Then in Canada, another group that's uh, commonly used are now called serotonin dopamine antagonists. Uh, in the old nomenclature, these were called antipsychotic medications. These are sometimes used for insomnia, probably inappropriately at times. Uh, really, those medications, they're not indicated for use for insomnia unless there's a comorbid psychiatric problem. I don't want to forget one other antidepressant that kind of sits in a class of its own uh, called mirtazapine, which works on serotonin and uh, histamine to help facilitate sleep. But it, it kind of stands on its own as a, um, it's called a noradrenergic serotonergic antagonist mixed agonist receptor. <laughs> it's a big Oh theme. my God, that's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> but it has a comp complicated mechanism of action involving serotonin and histamine to help with uh, sleep initiation and maintenance. I think those are the major classes of drugs that are at least on the prescription market in Canada for sleep. Um, and uh, before I forget, there's another antidepressant. Uh, trazodone is, is commonly oh. prescribed for sleep. What category does that belong in? Uh, I, I knew I was forgetting one, and I was thinking about the list in my head. So trazodone is another kind of uh, antidepressant or uh, serotonin uh, mixed agonist antagonist reuptake inhibitor that will also is very commonly used for sleep. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavale disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favorite podcast app. Okay, enough about the stuff that you swallow. What about sleep apps or wristbands promising a good night's sleep? How far do they go in helping us achieve that deep sleep that we all crave? So there's a whole bunch of devices on the market that you mentioned that uh, 
are marketed to help with sleep. So they're largely divided into a couple of different categories. Uh, one category is called wearables. So these are things that you wear. So this is like the Fitbit, you know, on your wrist, or there's another one called Ura. It's an Ura ring, for example, that you wear on your finger. And then these uh, devices can measure uh, sleep. The next uh, group of uh, devices are called nearables. So they purport to do the same thing, except they, you don't wear them, you're near them. So, for example, there's a certain mattress pads or special pillows that you can sleep on or sit on, and they are purported to evaluate uh, sleep, including sleep architecture and things uh, like this. And then there's a whole bunch of apps that are also marketed to help with sleep uh, as well. So, you know, the data on all of these devices, it can't keep up with the um, the the uh, novelty that these devices uh, keep getting innovated by. So uh, it's very hard for research to keep up. As soon as you evaluate one device properly, like Fitbit then comes up with their new algorithm for their next uh, group of devices. So it's always hard to stay on top of these things. But largely speaking, uh, you know, just as a group, some general comments that uh, these devices are probably pretty good for the most part at measuring sleep. So they can tell when you're asleep uh, they're not necessarily that good, however, at measuring when you're awake. So they can miss periods of wakefulness or misidentify those periods more often. Uh, they also uh, are not necessarily that good at measuring specifics about sleep architecture. So, for example, identifying whether you're in deep sleep or REM sleep or light sleep. So in that sense, you know, they're still um, at a level where uh, we need further data to support their accuracy. But then the second part of these uh, devices, just as a group, it's not clear how useful this data is. So, uh, for example, Dr. Barrett and colleagues have identified or coined a term called orthosomnia, where there's a, a identifies a group of patients who they're so preoccupied with their Fitbit data or, you know, fill in, fill in the blank kind of device that says they're not getting, you know, enough sleep or getting good quality sleep that they're bringing this data to their doctor to look at to see if there's a problem. But because they're so focused on their sleep, ironically, that sabotages their sleep. You know, just as an example, you know, people are so preoccupied with getting eight hours of sleep at night, they might be trying to spend 10 hours in bed trying to get that eight hours of sleep that, you know, media has told them to get. But that's like putting a size eight foot into a size 10 shoe. You know, sometimes people can't fall asleep or sometimes they wake up too much in the middle of the night or they wake up too early. So, you know, in those cases, thinking about your sleep can really cause a problem. And so... You know, that's where you have to really uh, use these devices judiciously to, um, you know, for the information that they can provide. So, you know, there, I have to tell you, there was probably a time in my life when I was suffering from orthosomnia. Uh, I was certainly <laughs> focused. And, and actually, it was interesting. I had a sleep study at one point, and, and I was amazed to find out from this sleep study how often I was asleep when I thought that, that, you know, I estimated my, my duration of sleep at, at close to five hours, and it was probably a lot closer to seven hours uh, in, in that one sleep study. So I, I, think, I think you're bang on there. But it, it leads us naturally into, the, into a conversation about anxiety uh, that's contributing to, to insomnia these days. And there's so much going on right now, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, anxiety about, about emerging from the pandemic, the war in Ukraine. So how can we uh, continue to get a good night's sleep after hearing about crisis after crisis? What are your tips? Well, so, I mean, you got to stick with the basics first. And I know you're very well versed on the basics and have spoken a lot about this. But 
I have to at least mention those. The, the sleep routine is the most important thing. To, so to have a regular bedtime and wake-up time uh, and try to avoid naps in the day, try to stay active in the day. I tell my patients, you have to earn your sleep at night by staying awake and active during the day. Limiting the time that you spend awake in bed. So if you're awake more than 20 minutes in bed, try to get up and do something else and then return to bed when you're sleepy. I also tell people to avoid looking at the clock at night. So sleep is a really funny thing. The harder you try to sleep, the worse your sleep is. And so what happens when you look at the clock? Oh, it's midnight. It's one o'clock. I'm not asleep. It's four o'clock. I only have two hours before I have to get up. By making you think about your sleep more, that actually sabotages your sleep. Uh, there are also other things that we want to avoid, things like looking at backlit screens before bedtime, avoiding things like caffeine, alcohol, cannabis, these kinds of things before sleep. So the backlit screens are uh, a double-edged sword. Not only does the light from the screen trick our brain into thinking it's daytime uh, and so suppresses the production of melatonin that we all need to facilitate sleep initiation and maintenance, but there's also a psychological arousal associated with looking at the phone, especially at night. You know, if it's a teenager, it could be like, oh, you know, Harry kissed Sally behind Jenny's back or I don't know, something like that. But then start thinking about it, and ruminating about that. But that, uh, that kind of a stimulus will facilitate arousal that will be an impediment to sleep. So it, you want to both get rid of the physiological and the psychological arousal associated with the uh, phone. So uh, the bedroom environment is also very important. The right temperature, you know, a little bit cooler, very dark. We need darkness to facilitate sleep. You know, light can even go through the eyelids, right, for people to, to pick up. Uh, so, you know, uh, the environment is also very important. Sometimes it's a spouse that's actually waking you up or even a pet. So I always ask patients about their pets. You know, almost 50% of people actually sleep with their pets at nighttime. And sometimes pets can be disruptive to their uh, sleep. Once these behavioral things, uh, those general things are uh, used, if there's still some problems, there are some more aggressive behavioral or cognitive strategies that people can use depending on the anxiety they have for the pandemic. So one thing in particular uh, I suggest is try to limit the amount of news consumption that you have. There are studies showing that people who consume more than three hours of news per day, that's a very strong predictive factor for insomnia the, the next day. So just to limit that infodemic that we all have, because we have access to information like we never have had before. And at what point should you be thinking about seeing your doctor? So I, I think for that, uh, it really comes down to two things. A, have people tried those behavioral strategies first? Uh, so those are really important to do. And especially with the pandemic, we have to be better at doing them than uh, how we did them in the past. You know, when we didn't have such stressors and anxiety and war and things like that going on. And uh, B, uh, is the sleep affecting your ability to function in the day? Uh, roles at work or relationship issues or uh, precipitating or contributing to conflicts or other issues that's compromising your ability to function in all the roles that we occupy during the day. If there's evidence of those issues occurring and haven't responded, these issues have not responded to some of the behavioral things at that point, it's probably reasonable to consult a physician to see if there's perhaps an unrecognized sleep disorder that may be contributing. Because the one thing about those recommendations, if there's an unrecognized sleep disorder, those recommendations really generally are not that helpful. And finally, you know, since we, we started our conversation by talking about those natural remedies, at what point do you either recommend or suggest 
that people try those even before seeing the doctor? Should they see their doctor first before discussing uh, those remedies or should they try them first? It would be ideal to see a doctor first before trying those remedies. Again, largely the evidence for those remedies uh, in the absence of a few specified sleep disorders is generally very sparse and generally most of those are not that effective. There can also be implications for using those too. If you're on certain kinds of medications, for example, melatonin can have interactions with certain blood pressure medications or anticoagulants. So in those cases, there can be concern. So it's really important to consider a behavioral strategy first to try to address sleep and to be consistent with that for at least a month or two. At some point, if problems are persisting, you know, people are still waiting to see a doctor, for example, it's not unreasonable to try those uh, remedies in certain circumstances. But if those medications are to be used, uh, really to limit it to just short-term use for those drugs, if, if you want to consider using them. Well, uh, Dr. Elliot Lee, uh, I'm sure your practice is full, given the number of people I've spoken to who are having problems sleeping these days. I want to thank you uh, for giving us some of your best tips, and I think I'll try some of them myself. Okay. Well, thanks so much for speaking with us. It's been my pleasure. Dr. Elliot Lee is the medical director of the Sleep Disorders Clinic at the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Centre. Here's your dose of smart advice. There are a lot of non-prescription sleep aids on the market. Compared to prescription medications, they may have fewer side effects, but there isn't a lot of scientific evidence one way or another on how effective they are. In general, they work by making you groggy rather than improving the quality of sleep. And non-prescription products have less oversight by regulators. Melatonin is a special case. There are specific conditions for which melatonin may be the answer you're looking for. In general, it's a good idea to see your healthcare provider before trying over-the-counter sleep aids. The best ways to improve sleep quality involve changing your approach to better sleep. The most important of these is to try to go to bed at the same time and get up at the same time each day. Since the pandemic, many of us have stopped doing things that help with sleep, like getting regular exercise and socializing. Instead of sleep medications, try resuming those things first. The main reason why so many people are having trouble sleeping these days has to do with anxiety. If you've got a lot of things on your mind, just writing down the things you have to do or the things you're worried about, make them seem smaller and more manageable. These are uncertain times and uncertainty feeds into anxiety. If current events are making you nervous, consider taking regular breaks from TV and social media. If you have topics you'd like discussed or questions answered, tweet me at NightShiftMD, at CBC White Coat, or at CBC Podcasts using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. Our email address is thedose at cbc.ca. You can find The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, please go to your podcast provider and rate us five stars so more people can find us. This edition of The Dose was produced by Stephanie Dubois. Technical operations were by Tim Lorimer. Our senior producer is Colleen Ross. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. If you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.